Welcome, welcome back, everybody, to the Juliminati Podcast, episode 216. What chow? Oh, as always, I'm one of your hosts, Mike Martin, joined by the duo known as Trapeze, Alex and Jesse. What? I don't want to know anything more. Yes, well, that's us. We're Trapeze. I need to know more. You want to know more? Okay, here you go. Uh, they were two female comedians, Linda Smith and Dawn French, and they were known for their dry wit and observational comedy but their humor could be quite mean-spirited at times. That's us. Right? Pretty good. That's us. I don't... Mean-spirited to who? The people they were making fun of, my guess. Ba-boom-boom. But, like, who were they making fun of? The patriarchy, man. Come on. Oh, if it's the patriarchy, then I'm like, all right. <laughs> I'm part of that. I feel like I could, you know, that's not making fun of anything. I don't... Look, this is why I don't want to know too much about trapeze. Are we trapeze? Yes. Can you buy me a drink? Of course you can. <laughs> Let's get on with this party. I, you know what? I'm down with that. Uh, Jesse's probably going to do some research because he can never help himself. I, I'm not looking it up. I don't... I, you know what? I don't even care. <laughs> tra- I don't even know trapeze. I don't know them. Trapeze has lasers, gymnast outfits smoke that's where i'm thinking that's that's like in my mind that's trapeze i'm down you know what else i'm down with is you giving us your money (laughs) take it away alex that is terrible (laughs) he always comes in does a perfect segue and then immediately hands the baton to me just like you should be handing us your money (laughs) at patreon.com slash and i'm not talking to you the average person that's that's fine if you want to get some some uh, ad-free episodes, mini-sodes. You want to get some art from Studio Electro. You want to be part of our Rotten Popcorn show. You want to see video versions of those same mini-sodes. You want to get merch. You want to get pre-sale. It's all in the mix, baby. But if that's not who I'm talking about today. Today, I'm talking to the rich man. The rich people. The man <laughs> at the top. The sperm whale. Is this going to end? Like, how long are we going to do this begging uh, for one particular individual before you give up on, on it? I'm going to try a few more times to see if I can really get somebody to do it just for he's the gonna, He's trying, yeah. Hey, listen, yeah. podcasts are re-bingeable. Maybe in like four or five years, this does hit the ears of That's some rich saying. individual. You're the sperm whale. We're the giant squid. Let's make evolution happen and fund this podcast. That's what I'm talking about. What are you trying to make? Some sort of whale squid? What are you? What are we doing? Yeah. I wasn't sure. I wasn't really following that. But um, just the survival of the fittest. You know what I'm saying? Like circle of life. For the rest of the fish out, out there that aren't the whale we're looking for, there's a new feature on that came out today for Patreon. And for everybody who listens to our ad-free episodes, our mini-sodes, our rotten popcorn episodes, starting next week with the episodes next week, unfortunately, it doesn't back sync. All of those audios uh, will be able to be listened to on Spotify. All you have to do is connect your Patreon to your Spotify, and those will still be exclusive to you, to your tier. Um, but you can now not have to worry about uh, downloading it on an entirely different site if you're a Spotify user. You can just jump over Pretty and badass. use it right there. It makes it super easy. That is every, every audio bit, our ad-free episodes, mini-sodes, rotten popcorn, like I said. So more value. I'm very excited for that, uh, that feature to hit because a lot of people do not like having to download it off of Patreon's RSS feed. Yeah. Which is fair. Jesse. Alex. It's my pleasure to bring you back to the world of reality. Maybe. Maybe. We talked about a couple weeks ago the, uh, the human zoos topic, and that kind of brought us to the Chicago World Fair. And we looked- well, I, I believe we were talking about human zoos. You are correct. A very yeah. peaceful country that I would love to visit one day, yeah. honestly. Um, but in that, we, were, we visited the Chicago World Fair and all the kind of crazy. We, we briefly looked at some of the crazy shit that they were displaying back then. But there's also somebody that would visit the Chicago World's Fair in the mid to late 1800s that many people now know 
as one of the most prolific serial killers of all time. I feel like people's mouths have been frothing for this one ever since we started doing like more and more of these big serial killers. Just, I don't know this story that well, but it's so zany what I know. Yeah, and uh, we'll talk about whether that zaniness is actually based on fact or not. Um, but there is a lot of potential truth, uh, as always with most serial killers, and most of what we know comes from his mouth in the first place. Uh, but that particular individual is most commonly known as H.H. Holmes. But that wasn't his actual name. It was what he called himself after, in his young adulthood, he moved to Chicago. No, his name was actually Herman Webster Mudgett. That's, well, I get H.H. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, not, and changing his last name from Mudgett to Holmes. Herman Webster Mudgett. That's like if you dropped a box of words down the stairs. Yeah, you know what? I like that description of his name. It's like a really great Herman one. Herman Webster Mudgett. Look at my lips. <laughs> Look at him. It's move. A, for those refrigerator word magnets and just being able to shove them together. Herman Webster Mudgett. What a, it's, a, it's a horrible fucking name. I don't get H.H. Holmes specifically. I don't understand exactly stylistically what he's going for. That should just be H.H.H. if we're being real. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you're right. That's just three H's. But uh, maybe we'll talk about that as we move into that next episode, as this will be a two-parter uh, with a small break in the middle, as we won't be able to record next week and get that out at the top so people know. There'll be a Minnesota compilation next week, and then the week after we'll wrap up H.H. Holmes. So yeah, H.H. Uh, Holmes is pretty well known in the true crime world. One of like the first things you learn past, I would say, like if you're really into like researching this kind of world. He's one of the first names you probably learn of just because of how bombastic his claims are. Unlike some of the more uh, grisly serial killers we've done in the most recent past, this man falls in line with cartoon character fucking supervillain. A man who creates his own castle of death specifically designed to murder the people that stay there. It is an insane story of a man who's incredibly smart, incredibly dangerous, and incredibly fucking weird. H.H. Uh, H. Holmes is a really interesting story. Yeah, people have been waiting for this one for, for a while, and for good reason. Um, yeah, out of curiosity, as I always ask on these, Alex, what are you aware of when it comes, or Jesse, if you know anything about him at all, but what, what do you know? What is your education on H.H. H. Holmes? Zero. I know nothing. Cool. I love that. I know that he, it's something about, he like ran a hotel where he could like pull levers that like lead people into the meat grinder, like almost like jigsaw or some shit like that. Yeah, you're not on the wrong path. You, you have the right idea. For I picture sure. him as like a Jack the Ripper looking bloke. I think I can, you can see look up pictures of him. I think I like just off the top of my dome, though, I think I'm picturing like a woodcut of a man in a top hat who looks like he goes, oh, I'm sorry. You are, uh, you're getting real good at being able to pin down serial killers. I'm going to give you a link right now, and you can go take a look at dear old H.H. Holmes right on the front page I of the Google. I want to. <laughs> oh, my God. Well, he's got like a bowler. <laughs> he's got a bowler, not a top hat. Yeah, but still. He looks kind of like my Uncle Joe. This guy looks like, you know how in uh, like a Western movie, there's always the one dude who's playing poker and he's losing, and then he pulls out that little tiny baby ass pistol. He's like, you yeah. yes. have my money. He looks like that. A hundred percent. That big mustache. Come on. You kind of kind of accidentally spoiled it by giving you this link. But his name, H.H. H. Holmes, uh, stood for Henry Howard Holmes. That was the three names he chose 
to switch to instead of uh, his original birth name. I don't know why you would get Herman rid of Herman Webster Mudgett. Yeah, he even got rid of Herman. It became Henry. It didn't even become he got rid of Herman, Herman Webster Mudgett. Can't blame. I guess I can't blame him on that one thing. Shout outs to all the human Herman Webster Mudgets listening. I, I apologize if that's your name. <laughs> I don't mean anything by it. Let's uh let's dive into what we're going to cover today. Herman Webster Mudgett's young life from birth all the way until he moves to Chicago itself, which is where we'll pick up the following episode. So Herman Webster Mudgett was born in Gilmanton, New Hampshire, a place where barely anything happened. It is one of those sleepy, <laughs> tiny fucking towns. There were very few people live and on May 16th of 1861, to give you an idea of how long ago this was. We're in the 1860s right now in a small, tiny little town in New Hampshire where there's not a lot fucking going on. Uh, he was the third born child to parents Levi Horton Mudgett and Theodate Page Price. Theodate Page Price? You heard the man. Theodate Page Price. I fucking love that name so oh, much. Oh, Theodate, our boy. What shall we name him? Herman Webster. <laughs> Herman Webster Mudgett. Yes, Theodate. <laughs> Levi. Levi's a good first name, but it's immediately followed by Horton Mudgett. So that just is rough. And it's unfortunate, different in a different way. Horton Mudgett. Rough. Paige Price is great. Theodate is weird. Levi's great. Horton Mudgett's weird. They were made for each other. This is like one of those. T- this is like one of those situations where you start saying words and then like the entire English language starts to sound like nonsense to you. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, what's happening yeah. to me right now. Like when you say sprinkle okay. a lot of times. OK, we got to get out of there. We got to yeah, get yeah, out of yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. No more sprinkle. I'm in the language vortex here. Pulling you out. Yeah. His father was a farmer for a fa- from a farming family, and his parents were both devout Methodists. And according to the 2007 Most Evil Profile on Holmes, his father was also a violent alcoholic. And the reason that I'm re- uh, kind of pointing to that is because, much like a lot of the people we've covered in this time period, what we know of this, pe- this man's parents is very fucking little. Even his, his, uh, his uh, youth and his childhood is still a little muddy and hard to pin down what is true and what is not other than the stories that have the, the, his childhood friends kind of being the witnesses to it. Uh, it's just a time where there's not a lot of records, and God knows where they came from and not really knows wh- what they really did after this. Some guy just sitting there like, yeah, uh, yeah, that happened. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. He, living in this town, it was the perfect town for young Herman to, be kind of, to become kind of the wolf, wolf in sheep's clothing. And one thing that we'll learn about Herman really early is that Unlike a lot of serial killers who in adulthood start to begin to play the game of here's my fake life of pleasant, happy, and then here's my evil life where I actually get to be who I want to be and murder and be terrible. Herman started playing that game in childhood. He immediately started creating a fake outward appearance of like a happy-go-lucky child with all these friends and in secret was doing some horrible things where pets were starting to go missing and wild animals were being found in weird, uh, mutilated ways, which again, we'll get to. But he's fascinating because he's one of the few who kind of not only knew what he liked early, but had no qualms doing it, hiding it, and also pretending to be something else. Uh, It's very bizarre. In the heart of Gilmanton, nestled among rolling pastures and meandering streams, there also sat the Mudget household which just sat there unassumingly, a typical emblem of 19th century Americana, this, home's, uh, this home hid secrets that would have made even the bravest souls of that tiny town tremble. Secrets of Mudget House. <laughs> the Mudget House secrets. Sitting there like an American lump, the Mudget House. Do you think if his name, 
he stuck with his name, he would be as popular, shall we say, within the true crime sphere. If he was, if his name was H.W. Mudget instead? Yeah, H.W.M. Or do you think he, his rebranding of himself actually gave him a little bit of a pizzazz, a little bit of a more entertaining side? A name is important. A name is important. I know it is. This one's very was, important. If he was Claymation, H.W. Mudgett would be a perfect name for him. Yes, sure. But because he's just a regular guy, I think he should stick with H.H. Holmes. So if he was like yeah. in Coraline, fine. Yeah. H.W. <laughs> Mudgett. Yeah. Right. If he was like, if, if he was like a Wallace and Gromit dude, that's, that's 110%. Sure. Oh, yeah. 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 I'm with But you. in real life, nah. H.H. No. H. Holmes, there's like an allure there. Right. There's yeah. also the Holmes name plus H.H. H. It just rolls off the tongue. It sounds, right. yeah, kind of mystical. It's the most like 1930s movie name that you could have. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, damn. You're damn. It's like very gangstery. Yeah. Young Herman was, the, this town's kind of paradox. To the naked eye, people saw just another child. Playing amidst the fields, exploring the woods, partaking in some childhood kind of shenanigans, which we'll get to. You know, the simple joys of being a child in 1860s, which, man, you go out there and you play hoop stick. I don't know that there was a lot of joy. I think it was probably hard. Yeah, it probably sucked. I think it was probably a, I think it was probably a fight to survive. There wasn't, I think the idea of what kids get today, get to be kids, that didn't happen until when? The 30s? When the laws passed in America? Was it the 30s? I don't even know. I feel like the 30s is not a great time to, like, start doing anything with kids in America. Yeah. Imagine being five and just ha- hard labor. That's all you do around the farm. You're just picking up rocks and putting down rocks. That sucks. So Herman's proclivities, procliv- proclivities, good Jesus, I know how to say that word, I swear. But whenever I see it written out, it confuses my brain. Were first noted in obvious, like, hush conversations and rumors among the townsfolk. Pets, especially those of smaller kind, did actually begin to disappear as dear old Holmes began to grow up. And it began happening with alarming regularity. Cats, birds, and even the occasional squirrel just vanished, only to be found later in secluded spots, each bearing witness to unspeakable acts of mutilation and cruelty. Okay, two things. (laughs) First of all, who keeps a pet squirrel? That's psychotic. And second of all, and you know what? I know I'm, I stepped. Uh, I would say, yeah, that's weird. But my family, I know my family when my mom was a kid had a pet squirrel. What was it? What was the deal? Uh, well, the tree got like chopped down and a bunch of baby squirrels like were killed, but one lived. So they took it, raised it and it became their pet. Oh my God. Okay. All right. Well, I just, I'm, I'm surprised that that was a type of pet at any point in time. <laughs> I am too. That seems, I mean, more, overall, that seems more like a Pixar movie type of plot than like going to the pet store and grabbing a squirrel, which is what I was thinking. And uh, number, th- number, th- number two, like when you're like an evil child, when, when you have like dark thoughts and it's like the 1860s, like what do you do instead of listening to like dark metal? What sort of evil art do you consume? You, you stuff it away. He's living right now in a heavily religious town, which we'll talk about a little bit um, in, in, the, in just a few bit, uh, minutes, but heavily religious that was just all Methodist and any outward appearance of otherwise was just like it made you the town like uh like the black sheep of the town where just nobody came, like you know those are the weird ones are the ones that are doing like are sinners or doing these horrible things so if hh H. holmes actual activities of of mutilating was known i can see why they wouldn't necessarily bring it out because it would totally tarnish the town of however few people are living there yeah it adds like this david lynch level of weirdness to it like like this sort of like Stepford creepiness to the idea yeah. of it. 
because very much of, like uh, the stepford creepiness i wholly get completely ignored yeah you know and it wasn't just the mere act of like finding dead animals uh secu- secluded that made the town utterly uncomfortable but it was the manner in which it was done each creature seemed to have been meticulously dissected its insides laid out with an eerie precision that belied the hands of a child the small hands dissecting small creatures it was as though Herman was on a quest to decipher the very fabric of life by delving deep into the realm of death. What a wild way to put it. <laughs> Almost like a flesh necromancer. Uh, like, let's be real. The past, I've been playing a whole lot of Baldur's Gate. You know, that's where a lot of my right, mind right. is right flesh now. Here, a lot of fantasy talk. Yeah, yeah. yeah, there's a lot of necromancy. Listen, I found a book of necromancy. Did you put the gem in it, bro? I did, and I survived the rolls, but I don't know what to do with it now. Like, I'm, I'm lost on what to do with it. I got to figure it out. dead, homie, and then you I, go on a quest. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. All right, all right. Don't throw on two T's. All right. <laughs> so, yeah, but it's true. Like, he, he reminds me of Dahmer in a way, where Dahmer was also, like, all about curious in the bones, but instead, Dahmer never used the bones for anything. Kept saying he was going to, but it was just, like, a pile of animal bones that he never used. But Herman wasn't worried about the bones, but he did have a bizarre interest in, like, the anatomy of inside of a creature. And this is, you got, oh man, you got your serial killer bingo cards at the ready, everybody. You should be getting them because here we go. You know, childhood mutilation, just mark it off uh, on the, uh, on the thing. I thought you were going to say he fell down and hit his head and then it, things were never the same. <laughs> and well, we'll see. Uh, they may not be marked off for this guy. Uh, yeah, kids were obvious. Kids are curious, obviously. I, I mean, walking down like a sidewalk and seeing a dead bird. It's not like I wanted to rip it out, but you might poke it with a stick and then we'll move on. Like, no, what? No, you never like lived in like a little. Like, yeah, okay, like yeah, maybe like once before somebody was like, "Do not do that." You know what I mean? Oh, like, I mean, you ever like walking down the street with like a few of your friends and you all see a dead bird? You're like eight years old oh, and you just yeah. poke it with a stick. You're like, eh, yeah. that's interesting. Mm. Yeah, that, that's what I'm talking about. I'm not yeah. like, oh, God, yeah. No, like, and yeah. I'm just like, ew, gross. But yeah. not to what he's doing. Um, and the children were the first ones that kind of started talking about how weird Herman was. In the neighborhood, there was a little boy that would, I guess, Herman considered his friend that went by little Tommy. Little Tommy from the neighboring farm recounted tales of stumbling upon little Tommy karate. Little to- no, no, not Tommy karate time. All right. That's it's not for another like 100 years. It's always Tommy karate time, bro. What happened? He sent you a letter. He said, no more making fun of me or else. Yeah, no, 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 I definitely uh, no, no. <laughs> little Tommy from the neighboring farm recounted tales of stumbling upon Herman in the woods with a scalpel in hand and a lifeless creature at his feet. Sarah, the Jeez. baker's daughter of the town swore she once saw him emerge from the shadows, his hands stained and glazed in red blood. Yeah, stepped out from the shadows is what she said. (laughs) With with blood on his hand and a vacant gaze on his face. Standing in the sun's last light, when suddenly from the shadows he emerged, hands red with blood. All he whispered was a name that he could not call himself, H.H. Holmes. (laughs) It was Herman Webster Mudgett I saw that night. (laughs) H.W. Mudgett. Yeah, this little town of Gilmington was was a completely tight-knit community, one that often chose turning a blind eye to people's faults uh, to see the good in people. Herman was just the Mudgett boy, the son of Levi, Levi and Theodate, both respected <laughs> members of society. So yeah. what, why would anybody worry about this? Levi and Theodate's son. These stupid tales of him cutting animals up, eh, overactive imagination of the kids. The town, the town consistently reassured itself whenever these rumors would bubble up and eh, kids are just being imaginative it probably wasn't what it looked like or eh, no herman herman 
no, Harmon wouldn't do the little, maybe he's a little that's shy. Always the that's always the case, though. That, that didn't change from then to now to whenever. It's always like, no, no way. What a sweet boy. What? No. <laughs> it's that it's that same principle again of like your way of thinking about life being threatened and so you you double down on your reality again like it makes you deny stuff like a kid dissecting animals that doesn't well, you, happen you make <coughs> sorry you make a good point like there no, and because this was kind of consistent eventually somebody would see something that kind of clued them into the reality of who he was and among the denials and dismissals, those moments when somebody saw something as fleeting and rare as they were would actually get to see truly who Herman was. One example is a teacher who noticed Herman's unusual fixation on the anatomy of a dissected frog or a neighbor who observed his cold, calculating eyes as he watched a bird in flight. That one right there was like, that was a weird one. I was like, really? You're worried about the way he watched a bird? Okay, cool, man. But Didn't he? Hold on. Didn't he like... Well, not him, but didn't we go over someone very similar who was, like, dissecting frogs in the past? Haven't we done that? Yeah, yeah, you're thinking of Dahmer. Yeah. Dahmer loved to dissect things, and then he would display them out in the woods. Yeah, I feel like the bird falls into the same category of a thing that you are looking at, and instead of seeing it as, like, a beautiful life, you're like, how does that work? Like, if I disassembled it, what parts, like... Do the how do the wings? It's very mechanical because you don't see it as existing or having a soul or being a person or an animal mm-hmm. or whatever. It, it doesn't have feelings. It's like a thing. Yeah, very dumber. Very interesting. I saw him watch that bird. I saw him watch that bird, and it looked like he wanted to take it apart with his eyes. <laughs> he wanted to take it apart into its skin, into its bones. So I went <laughs> like, home and I did what I was supposed to. I prayed to God that night that he would bless Herman Webster much. I, I said that did not happen. I ignored that. <laughs> I went to bed with no remorse. well as time passed in little old gilmanton and the seasons changed and life went on these little glimpses of herman would be continued to be seen and his actions remained casting a darker and darker shadow on the town's streets and as the boy grew so did the intensity of this guy's actions and still nobody did anything and whispers about him transformed from curious tales to fearful speculation what year now 18, so right now we're looking probably in the early 1870s, 1870, 1871, around so this time. you still can't quite call the cops. I mean, no, you got like the Pinkertons you could probably go find. But not for like a child that's being weird. No, no, yeah. no. Not, not unless people I are mean, willing really to like. have a town like, sheriff, but the town sheriff's going to be like, what? No, I don't care. Yeah, go, yeah. I am, yeah. I'm, yeah this is, I he's go he's operating around the same time Billy the Kid is still whipping around, I think. Billy right. the Kid was in the 60s, 1860s. There's not like institutional help. Yeah. Yeah. The child they all saw growing up playing in the fields was now be slowly becoming an enigma, one they couldn't ignore, and the town of Gilmanton would soon come to grapple with the dark legacy that he would eventually leave behind. Herman Webster Mudgett, better known by his later alias of H.H. H. Holmes, exhibited early signs of sociopathy that are now recognized in the modern day as potential indicators of future violent behavior. These indicators often include cruelty to animals, as we always say, and an absence of empathy, and Holmes' childhood was not exempt from these harrowing instances often and very commonly. Uh, before we move forward, a shout out to our main source for today, the book by, uh, Depraved by our, my, one of my favorite true crime authors, Harold Schechter. Uh, there's also Devil in the White City, 
which is another amazing book on this subject and won a Pulitzer Prize, I think. I've seen this cool. book in like every bookstore that I've ever been in. Yeah, you if you've yeah, if you've been to any bookstore, second hand bookstore, you will see Devil in the White City, multiple of them. And it's a good read if you are if you have any interest in it. And they're both very good to get an idea of what they believe this guy to be. Everyone was obsessed with that book, man. I remember that. Man, yeah, it was a, it was a big one. Um, and in the f- past few years, some new research has come out from about H.H. H. Holmes, which we will address in the final episode. So as far as his a- animal cruelty is concerned, one of the most troubling and persistent anecdotes from Holmes' youth was his alleged fascination with performing the surgeries with the pets nearby, with the cats, dogs, and whatnot. And it wasn't just mere childhood curiosity about uh, anatomy, but these operations were gruesome and were executed without any semblance of compassion or empathy. The difference between him and Dahmer is he did not seek to display his work afterward. Dahmer very much, if you remember, kind of displayed the intestines of the dog in a tree for a hiker to eventually find. His animals were just kind of stumbled upon, left to just rot where he uh, ended up killing the animal and, and moving on with his life. And that part is, uh, it's a slight difference. There's, there's an interesting, like there was still an interesting, weird. Differing motivations though. Like not, not mm, the same. Panache to, to, to Dahmer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As for his friendship and relationship with his peers, there were also dark whispers here too. One particularly disturbing story recounts a time when Holmes and some childhood friends were exploring an old house. And upon discovering a human skeleton, not what you would think like a rotted body that rotted out, but most likely used for medical purposes. This is a time where people were, every fucking doctor had like those skeletons, but they were real people skeletons at this time. Like they were genuine uh, skeletons. Holmes reportedly took advantage of his friend's fright and brandishing the bones in a way that showed not only his lack of fear, but also a desire to manipulate. And I want to talk about this incident uh, actually in more detail. As was typical for curious children, Herman often roamed the outskirts of his hometown with a small group of friends. Their adventures took them to various spots from the dense woods to old dilapidated buildings that dotted the rural landscape of Gilmanton. I mean, what else? Again, what else are you going to do in the 18 fucking 70s? Just wander around and look at shit. Yeah. And I'm sure those dilapidated homes were fucking dangerous. I imagine they fell apart very quickly. Step on some creaky boards, rip apart a dead squirrel. The works. That one's in secret, okay? No, he doesn't do that in front of people. One day, their wanderings led them to an abandoned property, and this wasn't their first foray into such places, as derelict structures often piqued children's curiosity. However, this exploration was destined to be different. As they wandered into the musty rooms, the group stumbled upon a grim discovery, that of a human skeleton. While such a find might seem macabre by, to- uh, okay, macabre, not macabre, sorry, macabre by modern standards. I got made fun of that so relentlessly. Listen, I have weird pronunciations that like. You'll never be as bad as the guy in my old Warcraft guild way back when, when we went to Stratholme and he goes, guys, watch out for the cadavers. We were like, what? <laughs> He's like, the cadavers are everywhere. Like, you mean Jacques. cadaver, bro? He's like, I've never <laughs> heard that word before. We were like, the cadavers, you know, shit, I love that. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, while people today probably would find, like think finding a human skeleton macabre and, and like by modern standards, like we said a momentary, uh, like a little bit ago, this thing was likely used for medical speci- for a medical specimen at some point, left behind by a doctor or a medical student. Thank you to Talkspace for sponsoring today's episode. And I'm a champion of mental health. I have been for years, and I will be for the rest of my life. It's so important, and it drives me crazy when people treat their mental health like something they just have normal control over. Do you have control over any of the other things that happen to your body when you get sick? 
You go to the doctors to keep yourself in the good health zone. Why wouldn't you do the same thing for the brain? You know, that squishy piece of meat that contains you inside of it? The whole personality of you? Yeah, take care of that thing. Look, we all get down sometimes. Some of us more than others. God knows depression has hit me like a truck through my life. And it's affected my life in a way that is irreversible. But it wasn't until I started getting therapy that I realized just how badly I needed to get control over my life and talking through it and just helping getting that outside perspective made my life just come into focus. And I get it, it's difficult to like find time out of your day, especially if you have kids or another job. I don't go to in-person therapy. I use Talkspace and use online therapy. It's convenient to meet online, whether you're at home or anywhere you're comfortable, and you can talk to them about anything that you need to talk about in your life to just make that difference positive. And then there's the flip side. Seeing a therapist and psychiatrist can be scary because it can be expensive. That's another reason you should try Talkspace. By doing everything online, Talkspace has made getting the help that you want easy, accessible, and affordable. When you've met your therapy goals or simply want to cancel, Talkspace has a simple cancellation process and will work with you to get a prorated refund for unused time if it's applicable. I get it. Sometimes you want to wait and just wait for something bad to happen but don't. As a listener of this podcast, you're going to get $80 off of your first month with Talkspace when you go to Talkspace.com slash chill. To match with a licensed therapist today, go to Talkspace.com slash chill to get $80 off of your first month and to show your support and to show you support for the show. That's it. Talkspace.com slash chill. Thanks to Talkspace for sponsoring the episode. Such items were not unheard of in the late 19th century, especially in, uh, in homes that once belonged to medical professionals. People were obsessed with that shit for a while, like being like, look, the bones are real. Yeah, well, this is the time of medical discovery where people don't really know a lot. And so there was a lot of poking and prodding and fucking around with the body until we realized what worked and what didn't. Uh, It was a horror house. Having a doctor come over could actually maybe cure you or you might lose a leg because the hot blood in the leg is causing the fever or something. You never know what was going to (laughs) happen. And then you could probably get right. a haircut after that because they were also usually a barber. Look, the guy who made your chair also That's made your coffee. Tight. So like, it was, it was a time to be alive, man. <laughs> that makes yeah. sense. This is when there was work for the American people. You could always do something. Especially if you were in the it's West. on the head. It, like, yeah, yes. Well, this is, this is New Hampshire. We're not out West, but yeah. Sure, 100%. but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. The initial reaction was from predictable from the children. Most of the children confronted with the stark bleached bones of a human form recoiled in horror. Their hearts race, their imaginations would run wild, and the dim interior of the old house seemed suddenly oppressive. Every shadow seemed to be a lurking threat. That's my own potential. That's my own little spin, you know, adding a little flavor there. Just, I don't want you to think that came from Harold Schechter. He didn't say that. He said, he's like a poet. He's a poet of his time. I'm the poet, goddammit. I'm in, I'm in didn't even know Feyrune mode right now. But Herman's reaction was starkly different from the rest of the kids. Instead of being afraid of the bones or even having simple surprise, he simply became curious, fascinated by it. Seeing the discomfort and palpable fear of his friends, instead of offering words of reassurance, Herman seemingly decided to magnify their terror. He approached the skeleton, handling the bones with an unsettling familiarity as if they were old cool, toys, cool, 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 cool. with a grin that hinted at delight. He began to wave the bones at his friends, making the most of their terror. And again, uh, this, is not, this is a time where seeing a skeleton probably wasn't all that common unless you were going to the doctors. The terror wasn't just about the bones themselves, but also the way Herman manipulated the situation. Instead of being a mere participant in the, crew, in the group's fright, 
He assumed the role of instigator, savoring the control he wielded over the emotions of his peers, something that would become more and more common as he got older. The manipulation and control over people sometimes was the whole point. For the other children, this incident wasn't just a passing scare. It was a glimpse into the freaking abyss that was H.H. Holmes' psyche. Many of them would later recall this episode, recounting it with a mix of fear and revulsion. It was one of those defining moments that separated Herman from the average, average mischievous boy at this time, marking him as someone who derived pleasure from the discomfort of others. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I think I agree. I mean, kids can be mean, but this is a step in a weird direction for this time so i think he was definitely it's being definitely weirder that he's like wielding the bones so freely than it is weird that he is messing with everybody because i i know what it's like to get a yeah to get a rise out of people oh, of course you know what i mean yeah i mean yes <laughs> that's what we do for a living i do that on this show frequently yeah, I mean, with fun. you mathis yeah, you absolutely do. People think we're like not friends because of it or something. And it's just like, no, no. Oh yeah, no. But like that's I want them to. Because then they'll pick a side and join me in my war against We only do the show for the yeah. money at this point. I mean, we were just rolling in cash. Oh yeah, we're 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 bitter. We're like an old band that only has yeah, we we play and then I we go our separate way. And I uh Yeah, and life but life's easy for us, let me tell you. Yeah. We're we're coasting off this shit. <laughs> Don't what? <laughs> um, <laughs> and while this particular story is just kind of like a small stitch in the tapestry of, his, of this man's life, it's one of the only stories we have uh, witnesses of, which is why it's one of the more important ones to kind of reaffirm some of the rumored things that he would do uh, that we don't have a lot of witnesses for, because again, this is the 1870s and these people are long dead and really people weren't talking about it as much as they probably should have. And about the one of the things I also wanted to touch on before moving on to him getting a little older is his relationship with his family. It's, like I said earlier, less definitively known about his relationship with his immediate family during his formative years, but some accounts suggest that he might have been the victim of strict and potentially abusive upbringing, while others hint at a more typical 19th century household. So we have split sources on this. We, either he came from a home that was just normal for the for like the time or he was getting beat regularly by his father who was an alcoholic and if that was the case it's very possible that there was some head trauma involved at some point if the violent recountings are correct the issue is we just don't know so are you going with the with the long lasting head trauma that's what i'm saying like if you have it on your bingo board I just don't think this is good enough to give it, but you know, you're playing by your own rules. You can stamp, stomp it if you stamp it if you want. It's fine. What do you what do you think the the percentage of children were, that were getting hit was at this time? Your, oh my god, so many of them. I imagine all of them, <laughs> like ninety percent. Yeah, like you're saying, like either he was beat as a child or he had a normal upbringing for a child in the 19th century. Let me just say, beat. And I'm like beat to a point where he it, it caused him some actual like injuries to the head or something okay well yeah i don't know i have no idea but yeah you're right i mean but that's the thing too right uh it's a your point is something we talk about in every fucking serial killer series is just just because you were being hit as a kid and beaten abused doesn't give you the right to then go fucking kill people because your feelings you can't handle your feelings as an adult anymore yeah but to be fair i don't really think that's where they're coming from most no no (laughs) no it's an excuse i I agree with you i think it's a lot of time it's an excuse only the head trauma part is of particular interest if if these if these rumors were true then yeah like i said it's possible the man did have a head injury we just simply do not know about 
But Gilmanton's morning haze often witnessed children hustling to school with laughter. Other stories tell of him walking alone behind others without, like, with a dead, glazed look on his face. A glazed look in his eye and not a care on his face, one woman would say. And it's just, like, whether you could take that as a bit of evidence or, you, or you, it's up to you. Um, when it came to school itself, however, he was a very, very smart boy. Mathematics was often a subject that makes people want to rip their hair out, including myself in school. I was terrible at math. It was I, lucky I passed. But for Herman, it was simple. To him, it seemed like he was, it was like something like a symphony to him. Numbers just made sense. Math just made sense. He didn't even just fucking, like, like as an example, uh, he didn't just solve math problems. Like, in one instance, while his peers were grappling with, a comple- with complex arithmetic, Herman not only presented a solution in half the expected time for the teacher, leaving them com- uh, momentarily like, surprised, his method wasn't just correct, but it was more efficient than the traditional approach that was being given to him. The numbers, like, spoke to him. It was very, very bizarre. Interesting. But on top of that, so did literature. This dude would not only imbibe books, but he could recite Shakespeare and Milton, not merely as rote repetition, but with a depth of understanding of, of the word meaning of the words behind it, especially for somebody that's only in his like 10, 11 years old. He would often give impromptu interpretations of classical texts and sometimes provided perspective that even his instructions, instructors hadn't considered. And while this would be fascinating for somebody, maybe they have potential. They could go to college early if there was modern day. They're just clearly of a higher uh, level of intelligence than the average person. Instead of him leaning on that, he began to use it as a weapon. He saw people as inferior and would use his now ego as it grew and his knowledge of things beyond even those of his age to manipulate the situation, to keep people kind of under his heel, even if they didn't understand it. Um, it's, it was fascinating. And again, so as a child, wild. he was beginning to understand this stuff, which is just bizarre. Yeah, for some reason, Herman, while you know, reading the books, also wanted to understand the why behind a lot of what was being he was reading. During a science demonstration where a teacher showed the properties of different chemicals, Herman not only predicted the outcomes, but supposedly also proposed alternative methods to achieve the same results. This wasn't mere bookish knowledge, if true, but it was an intuitive grasp of scientific principles. Like he could like apply stuff. Yes. Insane. With, 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 with expertise. And all of this uncanny intelligence uh, on textbook education wasn't just confined there. He also had the unfortunate uncanny knack for understanding human behavior. He could navigate social situations with the finesse of like a, 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 of like a diplomat. He's just a full-on sociopath, basically. Full-on. Uh, for example, when yeah. a disagreement broke out among his peers, Herman would often position himself as the mediator between them. Not necessarily to resolve the conflict, though, but to steer it in a direction beneficial to him. Like, he just became the mediator. In another instance, when a fellow student claimed to have lost a prized possession, Herman miraculously found it, earning gratitude and admiration, even though whispers suggested that he likely was the one that fucking stole it in the first place. He's all about manipulating these people and getting praise and feeling like he can lord over them. Sure. The societal fabric of Gilmanton, steeped in Puritan values, emphasized the virtues of honesty, hard work, and community service. Herman, on the outside, easily seemed to embody these principles. 
at least again on the surface. He was often at the forefront of community projects, volunteering for church events, and even delivering passionate readings from the Bible. People uh, marveled at his maturity and depth, commenting on how blessed the Mudgett family was to have such a prodigious uh, son. Think about this, man. Like, even if the family knows that he's doing these things, the outside community loves this boy. It isn't until he becomes a teenager when, the, like I said earlier, when it's, they're unable to look away from the weirdness of it, does he have a problem. But as he's a kid, this dude is just doing everything that he's, so, quote unquote, supposed to do as a good kid. And then he's a fucking... How do you do... But, but everybody also knows that he's ripping these cats' guts out? That's well, I did, well, yeah, well, as a, the kids are whispering that around this time, the adults wouldn't start coming to grips with that until after he leaves the town. Whoa. Okay. That's, I mean, that's still just. Again, like I said earlier, there's, the adults are still seeing it, but they're doing like, right. I don't see it. I, I don't see it. Like just pretending like. I'm just saying, how do you do those sort of like mental gymnastics of like. Yeah, I absolutely. People can do both. A hundred percent. Um. Yet, those who looked closely could still see the duality in his actions. His involvement wasn't driven by altruism, but by an understanding of societal expectations, and he knew that in a town like Gilmanton, reputation was the fucking currency, and he was amassing as much of a fortune as he fucking could. And as the years went by, Herman's brilliance became even more pronounced, but so did the undercurrents of his darker tendencies. The community, enamored by the shine of his intellect, often missed the shadows that trailed behind. And as he transitioned from boyhood to adolescence, those shadows deepened, presaging the tempest that was soon to come. But he, thank you. I, I, I will say I the sorest presaging, uh, just so you know. Uh, but he would soon leave this small town for greener pastures. In the vast landscapes of Herman's life, his foray into the medical world was more than just academic, but I would consider this a turning point, illuminating the path of malevolence that he'd very, uh, very eagerly come to walk. What's great about this in sort of a like psychological, almost mechanical way is, you know, you can see the trajectory of obsessed and good at math, right? You can see the, the idea of uh, looking at the way things work. You can see how, you know, the way he treats other people. They're, they're not people, they're things, right? There's a lot here. That just, again, that bingo sheet person, is incredible yeah. because it's pretty much accurate in that. And it's free on Patreon. Go get like it. This guy literally is just going through all of the stereotypical serial killer. Like, you know, the way he just even um, wants to control people. Because, again, controlling people and manipulating a situation is, is you know, it's, it's almost like evil Dr. House. It's literally, Mo literally it's Moriarty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's Moriarty, right? <laughs> Yeah, this would be the Moriarty spinoff. <laughs> like it's Dr. literally House. Moriarty where he is just like, I see the math of how people work. And now that I've learned it, I can use that and manipulate them much like I would manipulate a frog that was dead. Things like that. It's absolutely villainous as shit. It's great. Like in a, you know, in a bad way. Yeah, but again, cartoon villainy and it just continues on from there. But as, as, as he graduates school and is prepped for college. And looking at this, like I said, this turning point that I see it as when entering the medical world, he finally leaves his small town of Gilman, uh, Gilmont and moves to Burlington, Vermont, when Herman would first step onto the campus of the University of Vermont. And he was brimming with anticipation, excited to dive into the medical world. The institution's sprawling green lawns and gothic arches 
would paint a, it kind of paints the picture of perfect ac- a- academia, like the college that everybody thinks of when you go to a presti- prestigious school. Sure. Um, the pre-med program here was touted as one of the best in the region, but for someone like Herman, whose intellect often outstripped that of his peers, the curriculum soon began to feel stifling. The lectures, while informative, lacked the depth and rigor he craved, and he yearned for a challenge in a realm where he could truly test the bounds of his potentials. And it would move to the halls of the University of Michigan's esteemed Department of Medicine and Surgery, where a new figure would emerge, a student whose ambitions were far from academic. See, the the, University of Vermont wasn't enough. So he went to the University of Michigan, and this was no ordinary medical student, of course. It would be the serial killer H.H. Holmes. And while most students buried their heads in their books, young Holmes had a far more macabre interest, the freshly deceased. Whispers snaked through the corridors of the university that Holmes wasn't just studying cadavers, that he was actively stealing them. He was stealing cadavers. And not for some youthful mischief or morbid fascination purpose, but for a purpose that was not as gross as you might think. What do you think he's stealing cadavers for before I give you the actual answer? Look at them, study them, learn more about I don't think mm-hmm. this is a sexual thing. I, again, I think this dude is like... You are correct. It is not a sexual yeah, thing. Yeah, this dude is straight up just, I am the Moriarty of this era and all of it. I will learn what I can of these humans. Right? I feel like that's that guy. Do you think the same, Alex? More? You said less, less gross than I might think? Less gross than you might think. Dead body tea party. What? <laughs> Dead body tea party. Uh, you're both wrong, oddly. Uh, that's not what he was doing with these bodies. Uh, he, would, he was stealing me. them, but for something, I guess, maybe I would consider more sinister in, in the real world, insurance scams. What? Yep, he was stealing bodies for insurance scams. He really is more. This guy is more Moriarty than I could be. <laughs> yep. He's legit like a Batman villain. Yes. Holmes, with a cold and calculating mind, would cunningly disfigure these stolen bodies, making it seem as if they had met with the tragic accidents. And then, with the audacity that only Holmes could muster with his ego and superiority complex, he'd claim their insurance money, taking it all the way to his bank, laughing along the fucking way. He would just steal bodies and (laughs) just like... It's, it's, it's like a crime you can only get away with. That's like an 1860s, 1880s crime. You have to have no soul, first of all, to do this crime. Yep. And secondly, yeah. And secondly, yeah. It's such an old timey crime. Right? <laughs> such now, a dastardly deed. There are also tales that Holmes would head out if there were no bodies in the college fresh from to steal to go out into the moonlight, shovel in hand, and dig up bodies. The question is if these tales are true or not. Uh, where the fog's rolling in and the sounds of the distant hooting owl. These stories are as spine-tingling as they may be for people who really, and these are active stories that people truly believe, uh, they blur the line between what is actual fact and the folklore that has sprung up around H.H. Holmes over the many years. Yeah, Holmes saw the allure in the dead, not just for the thrill, but for the potential monetary gain, as we've learned. But it was also, uh, but was he also truly the graveyard lurker, the nocturnal-like creature that many believe him to be? Or is it just another layer of legend woven into his fabric of life, already brimming with genuine horror? One thing is indisputable. Holmes' life was a twisted tapestry of deceit, manipulation, cold-blooded calculation. And whether he was a grave robber driven by dark desires or just somebody who saw the dead as a means to financial ends, we don't know. It is, uh, what we do know is that we don't know. 
there are no physical facts or witnesses to him digging up graves. However, Holmes claims he did. But a lot of what Holmes did uh, after he was caught fucking, was build yeah. his legend. He very much took that opportunity to build his legend. He's trying to be Jack the Ripper. Very much. Yeah, he very. Yeah, exactly. Um, regardless, he never got kicked out of school for it. He never got caught for it. And during his academic pursuit, Herman's life took a significant turn personally as well. Enter Clara Lovering, a delicate woman with soft features who entered this man's life. Why does she have like a, the name of like a character from a TV show? Exactly, dude. I would, that was my same thought. What are we going to name this love, love interest? How about Lovering? Clara. Perfect. <laughs> what is happening here? <laughs> Delicate features. You want the reality because that's so that's how people described her. People had a weird thing with describing people with soft features, hard features. Remember uh, whose mom uh, true crime in this time period was like running the shop for the dad. And people described her as a strong, like, he- like heavy set woman. Just like they have no qualms weirdly objectifying the way they describe women in this time. Their courtship to the external world, just like when he was a child seemed idyllic. Whispers of the handsome medical student and his beautiful bride filled the corridors of the university, and they exchanged, exchanged vows, and soon after, like most who get married around this time, were quickly blessed with a boy. A son. But behind closed doors, the veneer of domestic, a domestic uh, bliss often cracked. Herman, the doting husband in public, was a tempest of anger at home. Seriously? His unpredictable moods and violent tendencies became increasingly evident, and Clara, initially blinded by love, soon confronted the harrowing truth. Her husband was not the man that she thought he was. And yeah, seriously, like, it just feels like another part of, of common. Well, this isn't as, like, as common, because we had Bundy get married and, like, have a life, but he was, like, a good dad, so, like, yeah, I thought that he was going to be kind of like the perfect husband. I said a good dad with air quotes that nobody could see, so make sure I didn't actually see. He's not actually a good dad. Uh, but yeah, he was a, a very violent. But, you know, again, it's a time where I imagine a lot of domestic abuse happened and people just fucking kept shut about it. But so, yeah, um, she kind of got a look at who he really was. And rumors, of course, would begin to seep through the community. Whispers of Herman's infidelity began to sprout up and grow loudly quickly. Tales of his nocturnal escapades became common knowledge, and instances of his violent outbursts towards Clara became frequent gossip around town. No longer are they in a small town, desperate to keep their darker secrets quiet from the world, but in a, in a world of students from all over, who rumor was entertainment. Clara, mustering all her strength, decided to prioritize her and her son's safety, and in that, she fled, leaving behind the grandeur of Michigan the shadows of her husband's misdeeds and returning to the familiar embrace of New Hampshire. And as she retreated, Herman remained undeterred, his dual life of academic brilliance and sinister undertakings continuing unabated. The trajectory of his life was now set in stone. And as Michigan's landscapes faded into his rear view, Chicago's skyline loomed heavily, setting the stage for the next chapter of this man's nefarious tale, where he would get a job ingratiate himself to the locals and build a wonderful hotel one that would be packed with visitors from around the world coming to the chicago fair where if their disappearance happened no one would know or question and there would be no one looking for them a place he built on his own the castle of death 
Yo, and that's we'll pick up next time. It's, on the it's such a it's such a ratchet up from where we're at right now. <laughs> we're just at like a mean guy who does some castle fucked up shit every once in a while to yeah. his castle of death at the World's Fair. Clara leaving him uh, at the end, and again him finishing school was it literally for me. It's on the outside. It seems like it just unlocked whatever pre- like pretenses he had about not doing what he loved, which was fucking poking at bodies that were alive at one point and really he goes ham and it does ratchet up quickly and just so you know his scamming doesn't stop either his entire life in chicago is based on him scamming his way at people out of money and scamming his way in in very moriarty like ways and being able to convince those people when they come looking for the money to not take the money <laughs> like he's very good at convincing them to go so insane so we'll be picking up with that with a fi- second and final part of dear old H.H. Holmes next time. Not next week, but in two weeks. Thank you all so much for listening. We're off to do a mini-sode. And after this, go to patreon.com pod because let me tell you what, if, if last time was the, the new spring, this is Empire Strikes Back. Oh, oh boy. And Giuseppe oh Land, boy. ready. Oh, right. I was like, what is happening? All right, yeah, all right, goodbye, everybody, goodbye. Bye. Bye. Anyway. Me and my wife were sitting outside indulging on our porch one night, enjoying ourselves. I needed to go to the bathroom, so I stepped back inside, and after a few moments, I hear my wife go, Holy shit, get out here! So I quickly dash back outside, and she's looking up at the sky in awe. I look up too, and there's a perfect line of dozen lights traveling across the sky.